Let us read from Hebrews 11. I'll be reading uh, 11, 23 to 29. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith Moses, when he was become of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Lord God Almighty, you are our strength and song. You are our salvation. And God, we rejoice and praise you today. Please, God, may you, uh, may we be a people to praise you just like Moses did in his song in Exodus 15, praising your glorious power, the greatness of your excellence, the depth of your mercy. Lord, please use my lips today to convey your life-giving truth, a truth that delivers people from their sin into salvation, and that you too would prepare the hearts of everyone here today to receive that truth, that it would grow to full maturity as you promise. And may this all be to your glory. May it be so in the name of Jesus Christ, the one name under heaven by which we may be saved. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Whereas last week I uh, went through uh, the text bit by bit, I want to take a little bit different uh, teaching style today and use this Hebrews passage I just read as a, a starting point because this is about the Exodus, but there's so many different scriptures that speak of the Exodus and its importance. So I won't be going through this uh, bit by bit, but using that as a launching point. Because the story of Moses and the Exodus, uh, by anybody who's spent time in church, and and even many people who haven't, you know the basic details off the top of your head. You know there was Moses, there know there was a couple plagues, and uh, if you get quizzed harder and you've done your study, you can know there were ten, and exactly the order of the ten, if you're really sharp. But uh, the basic details are so widely known, and it's a good thing, really, for people to have that basic understanding and then to build upon that. Uh, but it's more than just a story. Uh, it's something that critics and skeptics will do. Is often uh, It's a story, uh, maybe a cute story. It may even be a somewhat accurate story, but no. We must cling to the fact that this is, yes, a s- historical story. It really did happen, but it's far more than just a story. It's a story that teaches uh, eternal principles, and we must not let people dismiss it as just a tale. And it's those eternal principles that I want to discuss today. Uh, Paul, uh, when relaying the story of the Exodus uh, in his letter, first letter to the Corinthians, uh, makes the point that these uh, stories of the Exodus and of the wilderness years that followed are important uh, as examples, examples so that people don't become lax in their faith and end up being judged like those uh, generations there in the wilderness. So he speaks of it as an example of perseverance. But today I want to take it a step back because you can't persevere in your faith, persevere in your salvation unless you're saved first. So just as the Exodus teaches uh, principles of perseverance by way of warning and admonition, the word that Paul uh, chooses there in 1 Corinthians 10, it all teach, also teaches these principles of salvation. And that's what we want to look. At the end of this, I want us to be able to come away knowing firmly, clinging to the key truth that I've written there on your outlines, that the Exodus teaches salvation by grace 
through faith in the Messiah's completed work on the cross. It did back then, it does today. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So let us begin by looking at four great principles of salvation that God powerfully showed in and through the exodus from Egypt. First, we see that the purpose and execution of the exodus came from God's sovereign, loving, electing grace. Uh, That is the pure reason why he did it. Uh, Reading from Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 6 through 8, he writes, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were actually the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So to emphasize, we read there that God chose them, he loved them, not because they were special or powerful, as it says there, great in numbers, but purely because he had promised he would do so. It was for his own truth that he did this, uh, his own loving grace. And indeed, at that point in time, uh, the Israelites, while they had grown in number from uh, when they first came into Egypt, they were nothing compared to the population you know, worldwide. Uh, he could have chosen other more populous nations. Uh, they were exceedingly sinful, as is uh, stated specifically in uh, Deuteronomy 9. And in many ways, they weren't that much different than the Egyptians they were living with. They were engaging in idolatry. So to think that God uh, elected them because he saw something good in them is to overlook the plain facts. Uh, that scripture tells us in Deuteronomy there. They were sinful, just like their neighbors. They weren't special. Uh, They didn't have anything in and of themselves. It was, again, because of God's pure, electing, sovereign, loving grace. And so, too, our people throughout history uh, elected or uh, redeemed by this same sovereign, loving, electing grace. In the letter to Ephesians, we read Paul uh, saying, this is Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, that the Father in love predestined his people to salvation. That's the exact same thing. Elsewhere, and here reading from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Christians are called brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you to salvation. So the exact same principle of God's uh, loving, gracious election at work there in the Exodus with those people at work today with us. So again, clearly, uh, presently and back then, God is the sovereign, loving, electing God, uh, redeeming his people uh, for his own purpose. Well, the second uh, similarity uh, between the Exodus redemption and uh, eternal redemption lies in the fact that even the strongest of individuals could not do it in his own power. Try as he may by his own means, and Moses was a very unique individual, which we're going to look to. He's a very uh, wise and powerful individual, but try as he may, he could not do it in his own power. And of course, he attempted to do so. Uh, recall him looking out from uh, while he was living in Pharaoh's household, looking out and seeing uh, the injustices being done against his people. And he tried, you know, he said, hey, he's a solution-oriented guy. I'm going to go take care of this. I'm going to solve this. Uh, perhaps even then he felt God's special calling in his life. But trying to do God's calling, even if it was an accurate calling in his own power, he failed utterly. Right? What ended up happening? He was seen uh, killing somebody, labeled a murderer, and ended up having to flee the country, uh, leaving behind, as we just read there in uh, Hebrews, all of the wealth and the riches and the power and the honor that he had at his disposal uh, for ultimately what was a a higher calling, as later would be revealed to him. But uh, in the short term, he fled as a criminal, uh, fleeing for his own life to the desert. And that's what happens when we try to accomplish, be it little things or or great things like this uh, 
redemption of all his people by his own power. Instead, and later it's explained uh, to uh, Moses, I'm reading here from Exodus 3, verse 19, God says, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. So Moses' mighty hand was not enough. Uh, it took someone uh, far more powerful than uh, the, even the unique and special uh, called person of Moses to achieve this. It took God's power. And over and over again uh, in the Exodus, we see God getting credit for the great work he did. And that's the way he designed it. Um, I want to read here from the 15th chapter of Exodus, if you want to follow along with me. It's a song of Moses. And this song is sung by Moses and the whole congregation while they're on the other side of the sea. They just pass through, experience this miraculous uh, parting of the waters. They're on the far shore. And they're looking back as the waters cover their enemies. And it says specifically that they are observing the dead bodies of the Egyptians scattered on that ski- seashore. And what does Moses and all the people say He says this, starting at verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Uh, Skipping down to verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And then verse 11 you, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. So, so too, just like that, uh, in the Exodus redemption, people singing the praises of God for his power, accomplishing it by his means, so too are people throughout history redeemed by God's power, not their own, lest we be tricked that we can do it ourselves. Uh, Apostle Paul, again, writing in that letter to the Ephesians, this time chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, he admonishes them to understand and to know what he calls the exceeding greatness of God's power toward them. Just as the people in Moses' day needed to appreciate that exceeding greatness of the power of God towards his people and bringing them through the sea and crushing all those enemies under those waves, so too, as Paul says, do we today need to know and understand the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us. So clearly and presently, uh, both today and uh, in, the, in the Exodus, it's God's power that accomplishes this, not something that we can do. Well, the third principle is uh, really uh, is the flip side uh, of the coin of the second one, because as much as it's God's power, his sovereign power, that brought about that redemption then as well as redemption now, uh, individuals still had to appropriate that saving grace. They couldn't just sit back in their uh, tents there in Egypt and say, okay, I'm, I'm waiting for you to do your work, God. No, uh, they had to appropriate the shed blood on their behalf. So let me read here from uh, Exodus 12, which is the chapter where we uh, have God telling Moses, giving instructions for how to do that first Passover feast. Uh, And I'll read verses 7 and 12 to 13. Uh, God says, this is again instructing Moses, which he then relayed this to the people and they strictly observed it. He says, and they, that is the people, shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. 
I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God's power uh, was there to destroy uh, anybody who did not have that covering. So as much as they were you know, surrounded by their neighbors who were uh, observing the Passover, as much as they thought, oh yeah, yeah I heard Moses say that, and uh, he got that word from God, that's a good idea. Insofar as they did not do it themselves, eating the feast properly, anointing those doorposts and the lintel properly, they would not be under the covering blood of that lamb. So uh, again, just as then, uh, the people had to personally uh, individual by individual, family by family, appropriating uh, the blood on their behalf. So too must people throughout history, us today, personally appropriate uh, the atoning work on our behalf. And it's in Romans 10.9 is, I think, a, a good simple statement of uh, how individuals must appropriate that faith when Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's a trust in the same faithful promise of God on our behalf. So clearly, presently and in the Exodus, same thing. We must personally appropriate that shed blood on our behalf. Well, the fourth great principle I see uh, taught in the Exodus redemption is that a community of believers was created, uh, taken out from where they were. In this case, of the uh, people coming out of Egypt, they were liberated from the the hard taskmasters, the servitude of their Egyptian masters, and they were set free. Uh, And the point I want to make here is what were they set free to do? They were set free, as Scripture says, to serve the Lord. Nearly ten times Moses says, uh, passing along the Lord's command to Pharaoh and his sort of sub-leaders, passes on the command, free my people so they may go and serve me. Uh, One of those examples is Exodus 10.3. Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Uh, It's four verses later in 10.7 where those sub-leaders of Pharaoh, they're getting a clue. And they say to Pharaoh, let's let these people go, at least the men, so that they can go and serve their God. But unfortunately for Pharaoh and for uh, his whole country, he was not ready. It took a few more trials and uh, some more time until he uh, realized the wisdom of his advisor's words. But ultimately he did. He did let them go, and they made that break with Egypt, and they, they left the country in order to go serve their God. Uh, first offering up sacrifices on the way to the sea, and then I think the real fulfillment of that command to go serve their God was at Sinai. Of course, God revealing and codifying in the Ten Commandments and the, all the associated laws how it is that his people were to serve him, to, observe, to serve him in uh, obeying his will. And I think it's, rather than it's the exact same thing. You're seeing a pattern here. It's the same thing for us to do today. There are granted changes in how we apply and observe that. But First Peter 2 uh, makes it clear to us, and uh, let me draw the parallel, First Peter 2.9. Uh, he says, just as in Exodus 19, uh, that he took out for himself uh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here in First Peter 2, he writes, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the people of the Exodus time were called out of Egypt to go and serve him. They did so by, although far from uh, effectively, uh, uh, obeying the Ten Commandments, so too does Peter say we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, in order to sing his praises. So I ask you the question, how is it that we do that? 
uh, if the uh, people came out of Egypt to serve him by obeying the Ten Commandments, God's revealed will at that uh, period, how are we to sing his praises? And thankfully, Peter doesn't leave us wondering. Uh, two verses later, in verse 11 to 15, he gives us that answer. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So by doing good works, which of course are prepared uh, from beforehand by God for us to do, not earning us the merit of salvation, but showing forth, serving him by obeying his revealed will. That's how we sing his praises. That's how we do uh, that parallel command to the Exodus time. So just as back then, uh, so now do we uh, obey God and his revealed will. Again, that parallel. We too are a special people, and we show that specialness to all who observe. As Peter says, there's people around us who are watching, and we show our specialness by obeying and doing those good works. We've seen thus far that the Exodus redemption, uh, just like our own redemption, uh, was a gracious, powerful, sovereign, loving, electing work by which God drew out from that pagan nation uh, his own people, and they were drawn out for the purpose of serving him, and uh, that's the same case for us. Um, But we must ask, what was their faith in? And I've already made the point, perhaps jumping ahead, that their faith was in a substitutionary atonement. Back then, it was pictured in the blood of that lamb, but we must insist on the fact that it's not that they had, um, you know, sort of a, a, a kid faith or a different faith, really, uh, or a faith in something else would be a, a horrible error because if they had faith in anything else but Christ, looking forward to Christ, they were being taught idolatry. So we must insist on the fact that they were being taught the same thing that we are. There is, as I said, only one name under heaven by which men may be saved, where it be now or in Moses' day, the exact same thing. So they were looking forward to a sacrifice on the cross as pictured by the blood of that lamb, and we look back to that completed work on the cross. Um, And this, of course, is the clear testimony of Scripture, the fact that people were looking forward, and they knew to a certain degree, certainly not all the details uh, that we know. We have the benefit of living post-cross and looking back on it, but they certainly were looking forward to it. Uh, Jesus repeatedly, in in John, several instances, says that Moses and the uh, prophets testified and wrote of him. Uh, We're told that Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day, saw it, and was glad He saw whatever means, I don't think we know exactly, but he saw it and was glad. He delighted in the future promise of that completed sacrifice. Uh, Further, uh, Abraham was specifically instructed to teach his children and that uh, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant will come about by him teaching his children, raising them up in righteousness and justice. Again, there's no other way to do righteousness and true justice but through faith. So it has to have been the same faith. Uh, Otherwise, they were having a faith in something other than Christ, which, of course, would be idolatry. But there's also two uh, specific ways, other than those broad principles of object of faith, two specific ways in which I see uh, that Israel was instructed uh, about Christ throughout the Exodus. And those are, as you see in your outline, the Paschal Lamb as a type of Christ and Moses, the person, as a type of Christ. So uh, those points of, of parallel with the Lamb. Uh, The Israelites were instructed, of course, to select a lamb, and the the two key attributes was that it be uh, without blemish and no bones be broken, and then such a blemish-free, perfect specimen would provide atoning blood 
for the people. In the same way, we read in 1 Peter that Christ was a lamb without spot or blemish, and that uh, in John 19, that not one of his bones was broken. And then uh, quite explicitly, there's a beautiful uh, parallel drawn by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 or 5, that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So that typology being completed, that they had a, a real-life lamb, uh, they realized that this wasn't all that could ever be, that it was pointing forward to a future completed sacrifice. But then also looking at the person of Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 18.15 uh, uh, puts forward a promise that it took a long time to be fulfilled. And I wonder uh, how many generations they thought, is, is this a generation? When will it actually come to pass? But that promise in Deuteronomy 18.15 says that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And eventually that did come to pass in the person of Christ. And it's fascinating, as I was doing some research, to look at the number of similarities between Moses and Christ. There's a hundred in all, and I just picked out a few here that are striking. And, uh, but it's extensive, the parallels and uh, the ways in which Moses pointed to being a sinful person. He obviously couldn't achieve these things perfectly, but in his fallen humanity, pointing to the perfect Christ who would come. So just a few of those simple facts, like the fact that they were both Israelites. They were both born in a hostile territory um, under foreign rule, no less. As infants, they were both threatened by death, of course, um, having to, uh, Jesus having to f- uh, be born in uh, Bethlehem and then his family f- fleeing, as well as Moses having to be adopted or sent down the river and then adopted. Uh, they were both, as I jumped ahead, adopted by earthly parents, uh, Joseph in his case with his birth mother, but then uh, Moses having uh, adopted parents. Um, They both had affinity for their brethren, as I already mentioned, Moses looking out and wanting to help, and certainly Jesus coming to help his people, but yet they were both rejected by their brethren. They're in that situation of trying to uh, bring his own justice. Moses was uh, scorned for that attempt and and had to flee. It was part of the the curse against him. Uh, And again, Jesus, you know, rejected a prophet in his own homeland is rejected. So just as they were uh, desiring to reach out to their brethren, they were both rejected by their brethren. And further, they were both meek, the famous line of uh, Moses writing of himself that he was the meekest man to live. They were both prayerful. They both fulfilled the office of a prophet. They both fulfilled the office of a priest. They were both judges. Uh, They were both mediators between God and man. They were both intercessors on behalf of their people to God, and on and on. Again, over 100 points of overlap. So I, see, I hope you see those, those strong parallels that God raised up this person, Moses, to achieve a specific work then, but it wasn't just then. It was to point forward to a more glorious time that we now, thankfully, can look back on. But despite all of these similarities, which as you see, those four main principles and all those similarities about the Lamb and Moses, despite all these similarities, there's some critical absolutely critical differences that we must not overlook. I'm not up here to say that you know, we have uh, exactly in every detail the same type of salvation they did back then. I would hope not, because we'll get to here shortly. Uh, theirs was not enough. That, that redemption uh, out of Egypt was not enough. Their eternal salvation would have been enough, but their redemption from Egypt was not. And so one critical thing is that as great as the Exodus was, something was lacking. Uh, it's uh, it grieves our, my heart, I think, if we really feel for the lost, uh, to read Hebrews 3.16, which says that all of them who left Egypt rebelled in the desert. 
These are the people who saw God's mighty wonders, the people who were led out and crossed the river, the people who on the other bank of the river sang that song that we already uh, that I read portions of. Those same people, Hebrews 13, uh, 3.16 says, uh, rebelled. They died. Their bodies were scattered through the desert because of their disobedience. They did not believe. Those unbelieving people perished. So how is it that uh, that redemption was not enough? Well, they were redeemed out of Egypt, but not all of them were truly saved. Uh, whereas, and this is a, a critical contrast, Jesus promises something far greater. Reading from John uh, ten twenty eight, he says, I give them, that is his sheep, eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So for whatever purpose and for whatever specific reasons, many of the people that came out of Egypt were snatched out of God's hand, their bodies literally littering the desert because of their unbelief. But Jesus here promises, and he has the power to accomplish it, he promises that not one of his sheep will be snatched out of his hand, and that is a critical difference. The second thing is that um, while there was a, a singular event of the Passover, they're recorded in Exodus, it had to be repeated, right? And Hebrews, the book, is a beautiful story showing uh, the failure of the completeness of the Passover. And that's simply because uh, the blood of goats and calves uh, could not take away sin. It could only purify the flesh, as it says in Hebrews 9.13. It lacked the ability to take away the sin. Uh, the people were not permanently cured by the Passover blood in and of itself. They still had to be uh, embracing the, uh, the future sacrifice of Christ. Whereas, and this is the critical, uh, immeasurably critical fact, uh, Christ's sacrifice, again, as Hebrews so clearly states it, was sufficient for all. It's only to be done once, taking away sin. So the blood of bulls and goats could not take away uh, sin. It could only sanctify the flesh, as it says there, whereas the blood of Christ is sufficient to take away our sins. No other sacrifice is needed or could ever be warranted. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope through this that we can see that there are striking similarities, uh, some critical differences to always be reminded of uh, between the Exodus redemption and, and Christ's redemption. Uh, so glorious, yes, was, and it's a critical story, a thread that runs throughout the scriptures, being referred back to many times, the glory of the Exodus but oh, how much more glorious is Christ's redemption of us there on the cross. So with the saints of old, uh, we can fix our eyes and hold fast to that truth that as I said at the beginning, salvation is by grace, through faith, and the atoning work of the Messiah. So I admonish you not to uh, fall into or be misled by uh, other versions of that. There's a variety of ways in which different people try to impinge on that truth. Uh, the humanists and pagans either say there is no sin that needs to be dealt with, or they say that sin can be dealt with by something other than blood sacrifice. But that is a fatal and a false claim to think anything other than blood atonement is necessary. And also, we don't want to be like the Jews who mistakenly think their Messiah is still to come. They falsely and fatally look for a coming Messiah to save them, but yet the Messiah has already come, and next time he comes, it will be in judgment, much to their dismay. Uh, we also don't want to be like various cults who say that grace isn't enough. We need to add something to it, uh, that by adding what we do, we can make it complete. But that is, again, a false and fatal mistake and uh, impinges on the complete sufficiency of the cross work of Christ. And finally, we don't want to be misled uh, like some Christians who think that there's a, an absolutely different way in which Old Testament saints and we now are saved because that 
uh, fatally, uh, potentially, uh, tears apart what God has joined together. As Peter, I read earlier, calls one a, ho a holy nation, a royal priesthood. There is a unity there that should not be torn apart. So I urge you uh, to submit yourselves to this sovereign, loving, electing God who drew his people out of Egypt so many years ago, who draws us out of a sinful place to restore us as his own holy people, a, sin, a, a chosen generation. And again, reading from 1 Peter 2.9, that this chosen generation, us, that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do thank you for the beauty of your scriptures as uh, verified by the Holy Spirit and the fact that we can trust your scriptures as sufficient unto salvation, that the story of the Exodus, as beautiful as it is, is more than just a story. It is a matter of life and death, that embracing these true principles of salvation, of redemption of our souls, we can see that fuller picture that you put forward in Christ, your Son, who died on the cross once for all, a sufficient, complete, atoning work for your people. May all of us here not be tricked by these uh, false, disguised, errant attempts to impinge on your full truth. May we not think that there is another way to cover our sins. May we not look for someone else to accomplish that. May we not try to add to what you have completed. And may we be one with saints of old, looking to your one great salvation. I ask this on behalf of your people, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.